Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This program, which begins the 23rd year of Radio Curious, is the first of a two-part discussion of the struggle to regulate the most powerful engine of human behavior. Our guest is Eric Berkowitz, an attorney and journalist based in San Francisco, California, the author of Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire. Eric Berkowitz visited the studios of Radio Curious on December 29th, 2012. Eric Berkowitz, welcome to Radio Curious. I'm so glad you've called me. You were saying that the effect on other people of writing this book intrigued you. Your daughter giggled. uh, She couldn't talk about it, which is not unusual, I would anticipate, for an 11-year-old. No, I had to sort of uh, discuss with her in the right terms exactly what Daddy had gotten himself up to and what I did all day and why the stacks of books on my desk always included the word sex, which is such a charged word. It's more charged now than I think it's ever been. To tell people that I'm writing a book about morals laws, a historical book about morals laws, there's, it, it, it caused a lot of different reactions. Some said, you can't be serious. This can't be a serious subject. And I said, indeed it is. It's a subject that no one has n- neutral feelings about. In the flyleaf of your book, uh, Sex and Punishment, uh, your book is characterized as telling the story of the struggle to regulate the most powerful engine of human behavior. Indeed. And I'd like to frame our conversation in terms of that powerful engine, in terms of over the eons, uh, perhaps a million years or so, that our species has evolved. When we were able to develop language, uh, move from the hunter-gatherer tribal um, band association going in groups uh, to a more stable community that evolved around 10,000 years ago with the time of um, cultivation. And then we began to own land. And, and cultivate own, it. And, yeah. and cultivate it. So we didn't move as much. Sure, I'd love to speak about that. Where would you begin? I'll begin, for the moment, at the beginning of the research of the book. The book developed in a way that, that I think put skin on the bones that you just laid out. After writing a series of articles, I began to put my head around a much larger, more sustained project. Being a lawyer and being interested in the law, I had a head start, and law is always a fertile subject. And I, I decided to write, for lack of a better word, an anecdotal history of the law. The law based in stories, based in the blood and guts of human human behavior. I started my research really with nothing more of a notion than that. A friend of mine asked me, Eric, what was the first law? And I didn't know, and I think I probably still don't know. But I, I know the first written laws that we have. And I began to reach back, and I found the first written laws that we had, which were from, the, from ancient Mesopotamia about 3,000 3, years ago. And they've been translated and collected, and there's several c- collections, one of the later being Hammurabi's famous code. And... 
For our listeners who may not know the specifics of Hammurabi's code. Sure. Hammurabi was a, was a Babylonian king, uh, maybe 11, about 1500 BC. I could be off by a century or two. Uh, Babylon being a large city uh, in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley of what's currently Iraq, although he was certainly not the first. He's the most famous for having codified rules of behavior, which were written on a large black rock, which is now sitting in the Louvre. And those laws uh, were very interesting because they were the first discovery that we had that predated the the Hebrew Bible. So whereas the Hebrew Bible states repeatedly that these laws came from on high, that these laws were given to the Jews whole, fully cooked uh, from God, indeed, that really wasn't the case because we found uh, around the turn of the 20th century, the Hammurabi's steel, and, and that predated any interpretation of the Bible by many, many, many centuries. In fact, a lot of the laws in Hammurabi's code looked a lot like the laws from the Hebrew Bible. But what I found when I was examining these early laws is that most of them had to do with sex. Most of the laws that I came upon, fully a third of them, had to do with marriage, sexual relations, sex between classes, adultery, adultery, and more adultery. The first death penalty law that I could find was a penalty for an adulterous wife. And then the more that I dug, the more that I realized that as long as mankind has been writing down laws, they've been devoting a whole lot of that effort towards writing down laws, attempting to regulate, control, channel sexual behavior. And the, the flyleaf that you talked about a moment ago really came from Plato. And I thought uh, it's in Plato's Laws where he talks about sex being a raging frenzy, that it's a force inside man that is, a, if you want to translate from Greek, it's a raging frenzy more powerful or just as powerful as the craving for food, and for shelter, and for warmth. And it is a force that I think we can all agree that it's fairly futile to control entirely. So we're talking about what's essentially a futile effort that we haven't stopped trying to do. And I found very quickly that sexual laws had everything to do with class, power, control. I determined, and I think correctly, that sex is a great window. It's a great way in to the mysteries of the human mind. I'm not the first to say this. Well, let's stop here and uh, share with us what uh, you have seen about the human mind through that window. Well, that's an interesting question, and it's a very broad one. The human mind obviously is both on a conscious and an unconscious level. Consciously, I'm sitting here with a very nice man in this beautiful room, surrounded by trees. That's fine. But unconsciously, within my own mind, and I would presume within yours, there's a whole lot of chaos. And there's a whole lot of uh, memories, uh, urges, repressions, etc. And sex is both something that we feel consciously and unconsciously. And uh, the, the notion, for example, something as mundane as adultery, which now is no longer criminalized, 
but that's very recent, was a very, very hot subject amongst both the ancients and on into the modern world, which became tied with notions of control, male-female relations, etc. So the human mind, when it comes to sex, there's a lot of terror. There's a lot of sense of powerlessness. Plato's phrase had so much of an influence on me. I never thought of sex as being uh, that much of a motivator. In the world that I grew up in, it's, it's recreation and also, of course, you know, making children. But it was I never thought of it as prime mover of human relations. I, I am not steeped in Freud. Obviously, I've read Freud, but I'm, a, I'm 54 years old. I'm a little late for the deep Freudian influences that really infused the thinking of several generations before me. Adultery is generally focused against women. Um, Correct. In, in terms of men having multiple wives or multiple relationships, obviously it's the women who become pregnant and have a greater risk for being identified. In your research, what are the property relationships, the male ownership of the female, that deal with uh, adultery? Absolutely great question. The question of adultery should be reframed as female adultery. It was really only the Hebrews that first arrived at the notion that adultery could be a crime committed by men as well, although they really went lightly on men. It was the first notion legally that a man could commit adultery. To reach back to what you were saying just a few moments ago, as people gathered in villages, in cities, in more complex hierarchical societies, and began to acquire property, uh, that very quickly evolved into what happens when you die and how, how is your property left uh, to your descendants. And the notion of a child not really being a child of the father became uh, a very consuming passion. So on the most dry legal level, the control of women's sexuality the control of women's reproductive power can be justified or explained as a way of ensuring that a man's property is left to his, to his children. But I believe it goes much deeper than that as well. Tell us. My research tells me you want to go back 10,000 10, years or so. It's very difficult for me I, I, as a historian to presume too much when we don't have records. Okay, but the the... the, the consensus amongst people who have spent their lives on this is that some of the first sexual laws, one of the first sexual laws besides incest, had to do with not having sex with women during their period. And that, I believe, will tie with adultery. Just bear with me for just a, a moment. That notion of a woman, blood being so, uh, so, so much a sign that something has gone wrong, a sign of terror, a sign of injury. A woman, however, could bleed freely, you know, periodically, and not suffer. There was no injury. Now, don't, don't forget, women didn't menstruate all the time then. They were often pregnant. They were often lactating. And it was actually only quite recently that we made the connection between menstruation and reproduction and, and, and those questions. But I believe, and a lot of men believe, that the 
being confronted with woman's sexuality, with blood coming from exactly the place where love is made and where children emerge, uh, I think reminded men of a certain powerlessness that they had despite their physical strength. And to restrict women's sexuality during the period, during menstruation, uh, being the first urge, the second urge to be to restrict men, women's sexuality generally became a question of men overcoming forces that they think they can't control, making peace with the gods, making peace with their own sense of powerlessness in the, in the face of women's sexuality. Men can't produce children. Women can Yet at the same time, that imperative urge still exists and has existed among our species since the beginning and all other species in the forms that, that they exhibited. The imperative urge being? Um, to reproduce through sexual contact. Absolutely. The, the connection between sex and reproduction actually only came much later than we thought. But the activity was still there. Yes. And, and I think one of the significant differences between our species and the others is that most other mammals only copulate during the estrus. Correct. Which brings us to the evolutionary aspect. And, and you mentioned in, in the book, indirectly, is the importance for women to enjoy sex. There's some theories that the male genitals have uh, evolved or mutated as a way of producing a pleasurable experience for women. That could be true. There are there are theories to that uh, to that effect. I didn't focus on that as much in my in my research because I was really trying to stick to men's urges to regulate sexual behavior. But I want to go back to something that you mentioned before, which is interesting about the man owning the woman to pull us up to the present day, at least on this question. I've been doing a lot of research on something called the marital rape exception for the next edition of my book, which is essentially Sex and Punishment 2, covering the 20th century. Before you get to the marital rape exception... Yes. I want to mention that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Eric Berkowitz, an attorney and a journalist based in San Francisco, California, about his book, Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire. I'm Barry Vogel. Eric, the marital rape exception. Yes. We were talking about the evolution of women's rights, if you will, to not be owned by their husbands. As I was doing research for this next volume of the book, which is essentially sex and punishment in the 20th and 21st centuries, I noted that uh, it was really only, uh, only after the 1960s that it was held that a man could, in fact, rape his wife. The notion that a husband could force himself sexually, savagely, on his wife and not have legal exposure for that criminally is the rule. It's only been in the past 30 or 40 years that a woman has acquired the rights to her own bodily integrity against her husband to the extent that if he does rape her, he could be charged with rape. The long overdue development of a woman being being freed from the marital rape exception uh, came from a very quick exit that we've made from the last in the last hundred years of a woman when she gets married being completely uh, absorbed by her husband legally 
and socially that that is that when a woman married her husband she lost pretty much all property rights the man you know ran the property and her identity became subsumed in that of the husband when she said i do to marriage it was held that she also said i do to sexual relations on demand throughout the course of the marriage now women have have come a long way from that but i think we still have the notion that women are somehow if maybe the word isn't compromised reduced a little bit when they get married and whereas a, a man uh, can now be charged for violence, sexual violence against his wife, it's really quite rare. And part of my legal practice these days has been representing women in domestic violence circumstances. And that whole notion of domestic violence and uh, a woman being protected against domestic violence is um, a very, very, very recent development in the law. So let's distinguish how the human male in the greater Western society dresses in relationship to how the human female dresses, comparing that to um, other creatures, other mammals, uh, other birds, where the male is the colorful side and the female is the one that is much more likely to blend in to the natural surroundings. So I ask you that in relationship to the change that you just explained, the emergence or the the quick exit from being absorbed by the husband. Well, okay, this is you. I'm enjoying this interview. You you ask about essentially plumage and and the natural uh, or the evolutionary attributes that other animals have. Uh, that follow their gender. Uh, it's switched that in, our, switch. in our species. Sure. In our species, we have a very different situation, which is we get to make a choice about how we, how we outfit ourselves. And that, of course, is fully charged with a lot of significance. You know that we had, some, that we had in, in many ways, still have sumptuary laws in which control how people dress. And that became a great tool, uh, at least in this century, against um, gay Americans and gays in Western Europe, which is that there were literally laws against cross-dressing. And at least in our country, during our lifetimes, we're both born in the 50s, during our lifetimes, uh, the uh, there were rules in major cities, mostly on a on a on a city ordinance level, uh, stipulating that women could not wear more than three pieces of male clothing, or they would be subject to arrest. Those laws were really used more than anything to harass gays. But if we look back, uh, rules of Plumage rules of dressing ha- always had very, very, very sexual overtones and sexual legal overtones. For example, the veil. The veil being uh, an aspect of a female costume that hides her head and in many, many times hides her face. Well, in ancient Assyria, that's in modern-day Iraq and uh, Turkey, the veil was used by married women and if you weren't veiled 
that became a sign that you were sexually available, presumptively. A unmarried woman or a woman who was known to have sexual partners, not her husband, could not wear a veil. And if she did, she had hot pitch poured on her head. She was veiled forever. We always had, and throughout history, very, very precise costumes for prostitutes. In fact, the word prostitute comes from the Latin prostere, to stand out. And and the notion of clothing having a very direct uh, indicator, a very, very quick shorthand for where you stand legally and sexually. Of course, a prostitute could never bring a case for rape either. The notion the prostitute has been has consented to sex with the world. Of course, that's not true. The yellow star, the infamous yellow star that Jews were forced to wear, uh, that was no invention of the Nazis. That was simply an evolutionary step over a long, long period where Jews were, were uh, from the Middle Ages on, especially since the Black Death of the 14th century, were held to be sexually unavailable. And in order to prevent mistakes, Jews were often forced to wear separate costumes, one of which was a yellow star. And that sign, whereas for the Nazis, it made you stand out and it indicated the legal disabilities that they were operating under, it also shows sexual unavailability. How that relates exactly back to the evolutionary aspects of, of the males standing out and females blending in more, I don't know. I think we have, uh, as human beings, we have reason, we have memory, we have guilt, we have more com- complex laws, and we... Uh, We've taken whatever evolutionary gifts were given to us and turned them upside down. Yet we're subject in our society now to the imperatives of commercial advertising, of how men should dress and how women should dress. Men's clothing is pretty uniform. Men's suits are within a a fairly narrow range, whereas women's clothing uh, are dresses, skirts, or pants. Yes. If a man wore a bright red suit to a formal affair, uh, he wouldn't last very long there. But women can wear bright red dresses and look absolutely ravishing. Ravishing is the perhaps the operative word. Absolutely. Going back to the change that you were speaking about earlier, uh, the quick exit from being absorbed uh, by the husband. Women are independent now. To a greater extent than before. I'm not sure. It's not my place to say the extent of the independence. Well, yes. One of the stories of the last hundred years is the separation of, uh, at least for women, of sexuality from marriage. With the pill, with uh, easier access to abortion, with legal and societal independence, the small measures that they've taken— it's allowed women to confront their sexuality in a way that doesn't immediately implicate marriage and reproduction, to separate marriage from reproduction. For men, that's always been the case. For women, that's a rather new development. And how that relates to fashion, uh, sexually alluring clothing, it's all evolving now. It's very difficult to get a, 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 a big perspective on it because we're in the middle of it. I know that when my daughter's friends uh, who are you know, early teens wear sexually alluring outfits, I find that to be very disturbing. <clears throat> what disturbs you about that? <laughs> Everything. It, 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 and this is an interesting question that we could also talk about. 
we could talk about the the issue of a person like Roman Polanski, who is now a you know international criminals. Uh, he's <laughs> quite safe, but the notion of a man who's attracted to a young uh, a young girl is for us now um, abhorrent and repulsive, but it was the rule up until very, very recently. Well, Eric Berkowitz, uh, I'd like to begin our discussion in part two of our conversation on Radio Curious about those issues. Sure. For this first part, I want to thank you for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. And ask you three questions that uh, I've shared with you earlier. Yes. And one is about a eureka moment in your life in your experience that has changed your life or given you lasting insight? Now, we're not talking about my work. We're talking about Anything. my life entirely. Your, your, your range, okay. Eric Berkowitz. This is going to sound uh, hokey, but it's really true. Uh, the Eureka moment in my life happened at 15 years old when I became acquainted with the woman who's still my wife. Uh, because she was unlike anyone else I had known. And if we're talking about females and female liberation, and my wife uh, is a unique person and has been my friend and guide throughout. So I've been in love with her since I was 15, and I still am. So she's... Uh, so putting this into a time and place, this would have been in 1972, 73? 74 or so, yes. Yes, and so as I was developing... In all the ways you can imagine a 15-year-old man, uh, boy develops, she was there to guide me along and, and, uh, and make it much more significant than it would have been. What would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Uh, you know, I was with my son last night, who's 23 years old, in the woods, uh, and I turned to him and I said, I think I'm the luckiest person that I know. And I really believe that. I believe it because I'm doing what I want to do in life. I'm representing people that need help. I've got a legal practice that is, that is changing and evolving. And I'm writing books and I'm getting them published and they're getting read by people. And honestly, what I want to do for the rest of my short, precious life is continue writing books and continue trying to make myself necessary. There's nothing more horrifying to me than being irrelevant. And if I can make a difference in someone's life, if I can write uh, a good sentence, if I could pass a day and write a good sentence, and then the next day write a good paragraph, I think I'm doing okay. Is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? I read so much, uh, as I'm sure your listeners do. Uh, just being here in the studio, we're surrounded by books of people that you've interviewed before. And uh, there's a book that I just read by Philip Roth, called Nemesis, came out in 2010, and I also am just about finishing a, a memoir by one of my favorite writers, um, Isaac Bashevis Singer, a Nobel Prize winner, who wrote about his life being a child of the shtetl of the little towns in Poland and going through Warsaw and then coming to New York. It's a beautiful book. It's called Love and Exile by Isaac Bashevis Singer. Eric Berkowitz, thank you for being with us in the first half of our interview on Radio Curious. I'm here. I'm glad to be here. Eric Berkowitz, an attorney and journalist based in San Francisco, California, is the author of Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire. The books that he recommends are Nemesis by Philip Roth, 
and Love and Exile, an autobiographical trilogy by Isaac Vesheva's singer. This program was recorded in the studios of Radio Curious on December 29, 2012. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541, and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.